Very happy to have this opportunity and privilege to worship God today, to commune with Christ our Savior, and now to be able to continue a study on the book of Philippians, specifically on the subject of joy. And in this third installment this morning, we'll be talking about finding joy in Christ or finding joy in the Lord. In Philippians 3, verse 1, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Chapter 4, verse 4, perhaps the title verse of our entire series, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Someone says, why does Paul say finally halfway through the epistle? See, like a typical preacher, same bad habit where we say finally or in conclusion when there's 20 minutes left. My wife has been on me about that for years. In my defense of myself, in my defense of what Paul is saying here when he says finally, is the concept is actually furthermore or as to what remains. And he says, I'm telling you something I've told you over and over. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And that's Repetition is something we see in Paul's writings, Peter's writings throughout Scripture, that there's a benefit in a certain sense, to a certain degree, of repetition. Teachers understand the value of repetition. Let me say that again. Teachers understand the value of repetition. And he says, rejoice because it's safe. Joyless Christianity is unsafe. It's destructive. We've talked about that previously, this concept of joy some Christians have had in the past that you can't smile or have any fun or have any joy in life. That's very destructive for Christianity and for the cause of Christ. Joyless Christianity is dangerous. You think about the danger of certain occupations, mining, for example. Many miners, especially in the past, have lost their lives to dangerous gases, asphyxiation, explosions. And back before they had some of the technology that we now have today, they would use canaries, these birds, as warning signs. Canaries have a very sensitive metabolism to air quality, and so they would display effects or problems long before humans would experience them. And so as long as the canary was chirping and singing and happy you know it was safe. As soon as the singing stopped, you were in grave, imminent danger. And I submit to you that same concept applies to us spiritually as Christians. Whether it's in your marriage, your home, with your children, in this building, outside the building, in our worship, in our work, even in sorrow, we'll talk about joy through sorrow. I'll praise you in this storm. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When the singing stops, there is grave danger because joy is a gauge of our spiritual life. And so joy keeps us safe from worshiping and working with the wrong motive or the wrong heart. Joy also keeps us safe from temptation. Matthew Henry wrote, Joy in the Lord will guard you from the empty pleasures the tempter uses to bait his hooks. Jonathan Edwards wrote something similar we can relate to having just celebrated Thanksgiving. When I get up from the table after Thanksgiving, the last thing I want is more food. You can't tempt me with another bite. In the same way, it's hard for Satan to tempt a joyful believer with the empty pleasures of 
this world. And so the emphasis is on in the Lord. We've talked about how this deep, full, lasting joy is not found by direct selfish pursuit. It's a byproduct of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's the result of directly pursuing God and others in our life. And so if I don't have that joy in my life, the first question I need to ask, is that a reflection of my relationship with God through Christ? Paul writes in Philippians 3, 7 and 8, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing or experiencing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He says, I've counted and I'm continuing to count all things as lost in order that I may gain Christ because of the surpassing worth of knowing him. Everything else is expendable. I count as loss. And you look at the context in Philippians 3, we talked last time as he talks about his past. If Paul could find joy in his past and forgiveness of his past, so can we. And not just the negative things in his past, but maybe positive things in his past. In fact, the previous verses, he's talking about his pedigree, his resume. And he says, I count all of it loss to gain Christ. He said elsewhere, I was advancing rapidly in my own religion above many of my peers seemingly had it all by a worldly perspective. No doubt many regarded him an utter fool for throwing that all away. His friends and family likely considered him a disgrace. But when you really encounter Jesus, as Paul did, when you really come to know and experience the surpassing worth of Christ, things that once mattered so much to you no longer matter anymore, no longer matter the way they once did. And these two verses are very similar in their construction and in their sentiment. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Very similar in their, their construction and their sentiment. Very few people have this perception, have this clarity in life. You know what we do? You know what I do often? We grasp dung and rubbish at the expense of gaining Christ. Paul wasn't a crazy fool. He wasn't a madman beside himself. This was the greatest bargain and sell of his life. Paul gave up all of this that we read about in the previous verses, everything that he was obtaining and advancing, and he gave all of that up, not for lesser joy, for more joy, for greater joy. This was the most calculated sane, wisest, best decision of his life. In the weight of glory, C.S. Lewis wrote, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And he goes on to illustrate by saying, we're like children at the beach making our mud pies satisfied and content with our mud pies when there is a vacation at sea that's been offered to us. We are far too easily pleased. 
And as the case is with many of his quotes, so profound in a way I'd never thought of it this way. We think of desires always negative, always bad, pursuing happiness, pursuing, that's worldly, that's carnal, that's bad. But there's a sense in which you could argue that it's not that our desires are too strong, it's that they're too weak. We desire the wrong thing. It's not pursuing joy that's the problem. I think God created, he has set eternity in our hearts hunger and thirst after righteousness. I believe we've been created with desires and appetites and a desire to find joy because if channeled in the proper direction, in the proper path, it leads to God. Pursuing joy is not the problem. It's incorrectly defining joy in the source of joy, where and how we get joy that becomes the problem. And so what are we seeking? Because it's the nature of joy, of faith, hope, love, to seek. And we get discouraged, we get depressed, we get despondent whenever we come to realize or think that we can't have the joy or the the thing that we love and seek. Pursuit is the result of passion, as the psalmist said frequently, Psalm 27, 4, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after. I desired, therefore I sought. In Psalm 63, you are my God. Because you are my God, earnestly I seek you. Reminded of what's referred to often as the prayer of Ambrose, who wrote, Lord, teach me to seek you and reveal yourself to me when I seek you through the word. For I cannot seek you unless you first teach me, nor find you unless you first reveal yourself to me. Let me seek you in longing and long for you in seeking. Let me find you in love and love you in finding, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, for the love of Christ constrains us or compels us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Love compels and constrains us to pursue what has captured our heart. And so the question becomes, have we left our first Love, deep down in your heart, what do you really want? What do you want most? What do you desire? What do you dream about? What has your attention and focus? What has captivated your heart? What are you reading? What are you searching the internet for? What are you spending your time and money on? Love seeks and the works reflect what's captured our heart. As Jesus essentially says in Matthew 6, the pleasures measure the treasure. In Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46, again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to treasure hid in the field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath and buyeth the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. There is a radical reversal of values and priorities and perspective when you come to understand the surpassing worth of Christ. You'll do anything and everything to have Him. When you find the pearl of great price, all other pearls fade. And you'll sell all to have one to have the very best. We don't renounce joy to have the pearl of great price. Notice for joy thereof, he sold all that he had and bought the field. Now, certainly there are sacrifices to be made. We don't want to trivialize that, minimize that. It's not always easy. It is difficult. Take, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. 
But yet there's another sense in which we could share the sentiment of Paul and the apostles and Christians and many martyrs who gave up their time, their possessions, their relationships to go to a third world country, maybe even gave up their life. And in their journal and speeches, when commended, what sacrifices you've made for the kingdom. You know what they say, essentially? I never made a sacrifice. What do you mean you never made a sacrifice? For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Romans chapter 8. By comparison, not a sacrifice. Is it a sacrifice to do something that eternally blesses and rewards and brings happiness into my life? Work that provides the satisfaction of knowing you're living a life that counts, that is truly having an impact, the joy of work worth doing, clear conscience, peace of mind, hope for the future, not a sacrifice. It's a privilege. The return on investment is infinitely greater than anything we lose, anything we give up. Whatever we lose, we gain a hundredfold ultimately. As Jesus said in Mark 10, after the encounter with the rich young ruler who went away sad and grieved because he wasn't willing to pay the price, it hasn't changed. He went and sold all that he had and bought the field and have treasure in heaven. And Peter later says, Lord, we've left all to follow thee. And you, it's one of those times you want to know the, the tone. Was there arrogance? Was there a little bit of overconfidence? Was there self-pity? And Jesus essentially says, you sold all, you left all to have more. Is that what discipleship means? Is that what following, is it a net loss? Is that how you see this or is it a net gain? What you left behind, the sacrifice you made is nothing compared to what you find in me to the pearl of great price you get in exchange for following me. If we view our submission, our obedience, our sacrifice, our cross as just a loss and not ultimately a gain, we dishonor him. And if a commission given to us by an earthly ruler, a king, a president is considered a privilege and an honor, how can we call the commission the Lord has given us just a sacrifice, anything less than an honor and a privilege? As I think about those who are willing to pay the price in Hebrews 11, the example of the faith of Moses in Hebrews 11, 24 through 26, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Here was someone who recognized something infinitely more valuable and important than financial security and status and pleasure and entertainment and a world-class education. And nothing proclaims and demonstrates the value of the treasure more than whenever we're willing to be mistreated and sacrifice and count as lost things in order to gain Christ. And notice here a secret to happiness that most never discover. There is pleasure in sin. There is a level of happiness and joy in sin, but it's fleeting. And if you want joy that's deep and full and last, you've got to be willing to forego the pleasures of sin for a season to have a greater wealth 
and reward. And understand that the Lord, by nature, is not going to reward our drunkenness, our drug abuse, our fornication, prodigal living with lasting joy. As we go to the next chapter, we talked about Esau last time who sold his birthright for a single meal. And we talked about how when you put second things first and get your priorities out of order, not only do you lose the first things, you lose the value of the second things. It's putting first things first that gives value and perspective and meaning to everything. And so as we've connected the Beatitudes of Jesus to the various studies that we've had and the characteristics, the kind of life, the kind of person that results in a blessed life, a happy life. We talked in part one about finding joy and humble service. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the peacemakers. We talked last time about finding joy in our past, present, and future, in our uh, sanctification, our justification, our glorification. Blessed are those who mourn after their sin, their past. Those are the ones that are going to enter the kingdom. And the characteristic that I think connects the closest to what we're talking about this morning, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We think of purity as sinlessness and perfection, but the concept is singleness of heart, singleness of mind, singleness of motive. The opposite of purity is pollution contamination. So if you want a blessed life, if you want to be happy in life, don't be a hypocrite. Don't be half-hearted. No man can serve two masters. A house divided cannot stand. It won't be happy either. And so maybe we're unhappy because we're selling our birthright for a single meal. Maybe we're unhappy because we're settling for less than the best. And so what's your foundational joy? You think about the things that make you happy and bring you joy in life. All of them have a source except one. It's either God or self, the world. What's the most important thing in your life? What's your foundational interest? What's the foundational source of your joy? Would you be happy to have Christ if you could have nothing else? Or as Paul puts it in the book of Philippians, is gaining Christ so valuable to us that everything else is lost, is expendable, by comparison, psalmist said in Psalm 73, 25, and 26, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so once we really believe in the surpassing worth of knowing and experiencing Christ, He will be magnified in us. As Paul writes in Philippians 1, we'll pick up reading in verse 20, According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I what not, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. How do I make Christ look magnificent in my life? Well, if you look in chapter one, he previously talks about being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ and to the glory and praise of God. In verse 27, the thematic statement of the whole book, 
the constitution of heaven. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's how you make Christ look magnificent in the way that you live your life. Through your ministry, through your evangelism, through work worth doing. I'm going to make my, I'm going to use my hands, my feet, my eyes, my mouth, my ears, my heart, my mind, everything in my body to make Christ look magnificent so that people want Jesus. My goal in life, magnify Christ. My goal in death, magnify Christ. My passion and purpose is magnifying Christ in my life and in my death. And the word magnify, we think similar to glorify. Not that they look at me, but that they look at God and glorify your Father in heaven. Magnify means to show that something is superior, it's greater, it's bigger, it's better. And sadly, how often do we frequently miss these opportunities to magnify Christ to the world, to our, our world, to our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our children, to show Christ is bigger, better, superior, more important than you fill in the blank. This activity, this relationship, this gift, Joy in Jesus, joy in being satisfied in Christ is the key to making Him look great and magnificent by the way we live our life. And so how in the world do I magnify Christ and make Him look magnificent in my death? I think as we read earlier, the key is far better. Being with Christ is far better than anything the world has to offer me. He is so satisfying that I'm able to look at my death and say, I've gained because I get more Christ. Don't weep for me because I'm not dying, I'm gaining. I am far better now and forever. And that makes Christ look magnificent on my hospital bed, even if that becomes my deathbed. Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Death presents me with the loss of everything, and I'm able to look at it and say, it's gain. Hold on to this in your suffering. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. And so when we value Christ more than what we potentially gain in life without him, more than what we lose in death, we magnify him and his surpassing worth. And so in response to what we've considered, the surpassing worth of Christ and magnifying Christ in our life and death, the natural question becomes, can I have joy outside of Christ? Is that possible? Jesus said in John 16, 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. If you want joy that can't be taken away from you, joy that lasts both the source of your joy and yourself has to be immortal. If either are mortal, you have a joy that won't last. And the only enduring joy, the only joy that can't be taken away from you is found in Christ alone versus the pleasures of sin for a season. Sadly, many choose a joy 
that doesn't last. Just like the rich seven-eyed fool in Luke 12, so is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I think in answering this question, we have to also appreciate that God loves and blesses all. And so I think there is a measure of general grace and providence and goodness believer and unbeliever alike experience from God because of his mercy, because of his goodness and grace. Everybody gets a taste of that. And so I think it's ineffective to try to tell someone or argue with someone that they won't find any happiness or any joy at all outside of Christ. They know that's not true. We know that's not true. There is a measure of pleasure and happiness that people experience even outside of Christ because of the grace and providence of God. And so instead of trying to convince them you won't have any joy in life or any happiness in life apart from Christ, I think a more effective approach is what we see Paul doing in places like Acts chapter 14 as he addresses unbelievers here and says, nevertheless, he left not himself without witness and that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. His argument wasn't, you've never had joy in life because you don't have Jesus. His argument was, whatever gladness you have is from God. God is the universal source of goodness and blessing. Jesus said he makes the sun and the rain to shine on the just and the unjust. God provides in his providence, even for those who hate and reject him. There is a common grace given to all that causes gladness. But the problem for the unbeliever is that there's no outlet of expressing gratitude, which I believe is one of the greatest sources of joy in our life. If you want to be happy in life, be thankful. Be grateful. We're going to talk about that in chapter 4. They have no outlet to say thank you. The atheist experiences some of the same graces and providence we do and beauty that we do, the aesthetic argument for God's existence, which often fits under the design argument. Beauty exists. Beauty is real. Beauty can be perceived. That's a reality. Natural selection, survival of the fittest, cannot explain beauty. It serves no purpose. The only way you can account for beauty is that there is a beautiful God who creates beautiful things. And the atheist can experience that beauty walking beside the ocean, walking in the mountains, the birth of a child, all the beautiful things we experience in life. The difference is they have no one to thank for it. They have no outlet of gratitude and praise. The fact that he doesn't acknowledge the source of those blessings, that reality does not change the reality that every good and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. And all these gifts are meant to lead the receiver to the giver. And tragically, if he doesn't believe and repent, he will end up eternally in the place where the source of joy is not present. Why did the distressed and the despised and the poor and the sometimes depressed, why were they more willing to accept Christ? In Mark 2, 17, when Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, they that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. How often have we, if we're honest, how often have we thought like the unbeliever or like the self-righteous Pharisee that deep down we were good enough, we were secure enough, we were happy enough without Jesus? Maybe he was our plan B, our backup plan, our get out of jail card so we could go to heaven, but we didn't really appreciate how dependent, how wretched, how miserable, how sinful, how empty we were without him. And here's the truth. You will not fill that void until you fill the void in your life. 
And so Paul tells the happy heathen in Romans 1, God has not left himself without witness, the design argument. And that witness, that testimony demands that we respond in repentance. Chapter 2, the next chapter, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The blessings, the goodness, the providence, the grace, the gifts, the kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Your beautiful family, your job, your health, your wealth, every talent, every gift, every second, every day declares God is good and demands that we repent. God has given us, even in our unbelief, even in our rebellion, common goods and graces to turn us to the ultimate gift of His Son. And so as we bring our study to a close, we do have another verse left. Finally, my brethren, I did it. (laughs) Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Preserve me, which is going to give me joy, because I'm going to be preserved. It's going to be a joy that lasts. Preserve me because you are my refuge. You are my safest refuge. You are my pearl of great price. You are my treasure. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The people I find pleasure and joy from are people who find joy and delight in the Lord. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. And we see that time and time. Temptations, Satan promising us happiness and pleasure, delivering misery. Man has an affair because God wants him to be happy. We talked about the misconception of that direct pursuit of happiness. God wants me not in that way. Misery multiplies for the individual, for the family, for the children. Man takes his family into a place that's not a good spiritual environment. Misery multiplies. Parents send their children to a place to get the world-class education, but they send them to Babylon. Misery multiplies. Woman chooses to marry. She needs security, or maybe she's lonely, but she decides to do that outside of the Lord. Misery multiplies. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. God's not just my refuge. He's my counselor who leads me beside the still waters. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He leads me into the place of refuge. He leads me to the pearl of great price, to the hidden treasure I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Notice that the petition now becomes an expectation because he has treasured God above everything else because God is his safe refuge. Therefore, as a result, therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption, a messianic prophecy. David was going to die. But he had this promise, 2 Samuel 7. Peter quotes in Acts 2, the resurrection of Jesus. Death would not end the relationship. Death would not end the joy that can never be taken away from you. Therefore, the result, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Death will not keep me from being full in God's beautiful presence and inheritance forever. 
And so as we offer an invitation, I'm reminded of Luke 2, especially this time of year. Luke 2, 10 and 11. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in this city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. If you want great joy, it's through the gospel. It's through the good tidings. Respond to the gospel this morning. Obey the gospel. If you want all blessings that are found in Christ, how do I get into Christ where the treasure is? How do I find the pearl of great price? Galatians 3, Romans 6, the Great Commission, the book of Acts. You can go on your way rejoicing just as they did. Leap for joy, as Jesus said, because great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice in your salvation. Believe, repent, and be baptized. Be buried with him and resurrected to walk with him in newness of life. And you can find the pearl of great price. You can leap for joy this morning knowing that you're going to heaven, how often do we stop each day, no matter what's going on, and say, you know what, I can rejoice because I am going to heaven. I am gaining. I am one day closer to seeing Jesus as he is. And so I will rejoice. You can't find that joy outside of Christ. Maybe you're here and as a Christian, you need to have a joy that seeks and a joy that prioritizes and make Christ your foundational joy, and you need to magnify Christ in your life to show He is bigger, better, more superior than anything else going on in your life. If you need to repent, the kindness of God is calling demands that you repent. If you need to repent, if you need prayers and encouragement in that, we offer this invitation. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. And if you need to receive the King, He invites you to come. Please have a seat on the front as we stand and sing together.